0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. I wanted to address a quick thing right up here up at the top of the show. Um, I got a review in the other day from somebody, I don't know who, who said that they love the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate you listening and, and enjoying the show. Uh, and uh, they asked if it was possible to do some uh, some of Robert Block's more Lovecraftian stuff. And it absolutely, positively is. Um, I have had in my back pocket for a little while now the story The Fane of the Black Pharaoh, which, I'm, uh, uh, which I've am which i been thinking about doing, but it's kind of a longer story. It would probably be a two-part episode, and uh, I've been doing a lot of multi-part episodes lately, and I kind of want to shy away from that for a little bit, but but I promise you that the next time I decide to do a two-part episode, which will probably be in a couple of weeks because that's just how I am, uh, it will be Fane of the Black Pharaoh. I've wanted to do it for a while, and... Hopefully, uh, it'll be coming up in a couple of weeks here. So there you are, some Robert Block Lovecraftian goodness coming coming at you in a little while. Just please be patient, and thank you for listening. All right, on with the story. The Aquarium by Carl Jacoby Miss Emily Rhodes had been in London a little more than a year when she decided to give up her apartment and rent a house. The apartment was really quite comfortable, but as Miss Rhodes put it, she was tired of having her paints and easel next to her teacups. Accordingly, she turned to the advertisements in the Times. In April, she found what she was looking for. The advertisement read: "To let on Haney Lane, near Knightsbridge Station, two stories, twelve rooms, including conservatory and a Q, completely furnished. Longway and Longway agents." She read the advertisement a second time. The conservatory, she could turn into a studio and sounded ideal, but what in the world was an AQ? The two letters meant nothing to her. Miss Rhodes was 32, a tall, angular woman with black hair and metal gray eyes. She had never married for the simple reason that her painting had occupied too much of her time. The next day, she called at the office of the agents and was ushered in to see Talbot Longway, senior partner of the firm, a thin, cadaverous-looking individual with a completely bald pate. Oh, yes, said Mr. Longway, the house on Haney Lane. A very nice bit of property, and furnished, you know. Would you care to see it? First, replied Miss Rhodes, would you mind telling me what is an AQ? The agent coughed. I'm afraid that was more or less a joke on the part of my son, who is the junior member of this firm. But what does it mean? Talbot Longway stirred uncomfortably. "'The fact is, A.Q. refers to an aquarium which the former owner had constructed in the library, and which has never been removed. It needn't concern you at all,' he added hastily. "'As a matter of fact, it's a rather attractive piece, even though, I will admit, excessively large.'" It didn't concern Miss Rhodes. She told the agent she would like to see the property, whereupon Mr. Longway called a cab, and the two of them drove to the Haney Lane address. Miss Rhodes went through the house with a critical eye. She made certain minor objections, a suspected leak in the roof over the bedroom ceiling, a weakened spoke in the balustrade, a sticky sash weight in one of the dormer windows, all of which the agent agreed to repair. After a little haggling over Price, she signed a lease. The following day, Miss Rhodes oversaw the transportation of her paints, canvases, and personal possessions to her new home. Then she dispatched a letter to Edith Halbin, her old friend in Bristol. She had acquired a house, she wrote, and needed someone to occupy it with her. Now there was nothing in the way of Edith's long-contemplated move to London. On the 12th of April, Edith Halbin, a gaunt, prematurely grey woman, arrived together with two portmanteaux, three trunks, a Siamese cat named Cushing, and four kittens. Miss Rhodes greeted her warmly and proceeded to show her the house. Of course it's much more space than we need, she said together, but I like breathing room and whatever is the matter? Just over the threshold of the library, Edith had stopped and stood staring into the centre of the room. "'What is that?' she asked. Miss Rhodes frowned slightly and led the way forward, like an unwilling museum guard asked to describe an unpleasant picture. The aquarium was mounted on a low platform and measured nearly ten feet in length, three in width. At first glance, it resembled a sarcophagus of antiquity with ornamental stonework at each corner and eight legs that looked like enormous claws. The glass tank occupying the midsection of this structure was filled to the three-quarters mark with royally water into which Edith Halbin peered now with troubled eyes. "'Do you mean to say fish live in that?' she asked. Miss Rhodes shook her head. "'No, there are no fish. Whoever had this aquarium installed was a conchologist. He wanted to duplicate as closely as possible the natural conditions the specimens are found in.' "'What's a conchologist?' "'A collector of shells. It's quite a study, you know.' I would have put in fresh water, but the valve seems to be stuck. Edith Halbin took a step closer. An overpowering smell of putrefaction and stagnant water rose up out of the aquarium and crawled into her nostrils. With one hand she reached for the heavy cover. That's stuck too, said Miss Rhodes. I shall have to have a man out to fix the thing. In most respects, the house proved to be all that Miss Rhodes had hoped for. The conservatory jutted off from the rear and offered both good lighting and seclusion for her work. The bedrooms were large and airy. Only the library was a disappointment. The furniture there was heavy and cumbersome, and the entire room had an atmosphere of gloom and depression. The door, too, a heavy oak affair, persisted in squeaking no matter how much oil was applied to the hinges. It was equipped with a latch that had a trick of locking of its own accord. A week after they had taken up their joint residence, the two women had their first visitor. Answering the door, they found themselves confronted by a middle-aged man with a bristly mustache, grayish temples and pale eyes behind huge bone-rimmed spectacles. i believe this is yours,' he said without preamble, handing across a very wet and bedraggled cat. "'Cushing, wherever have you been?' cried Edith Halbin. "'She was on my roof and couldn't get down,' explained the man. "'I'm your neighbor, Lucius Bates.' While Edith took charge of the Siamese, Miss Rhodes thanked their visitor and asked him in to tea. She led the way to the library, which seemed the most masculine room of the house." I oh, see you've still got the aquarium," Lucius Bates said. Some time later, "If I were you, I'd have that thing taken out of here." Miss Rhodes began to pour the tea. It "Takes up too much room, and it's an ugly piece at best," he continued. "And personally, I don't care too much for its contents." "You mean the shells?" Bates nodded. "They were collected, you know, by Horatio Lear, a former owner of this house. He died a year ago." Edith Halbin, who had finished drying the Siamese with a cloth, looked up. Is that the Lear who is famous for his deep sea work? Yes, in a diving bell. He explored the Cynarbon Deep off the coast of Haiti. He was a conchologist, too, and brought up some rare shells from the ocean floor. I seem to remember, said Edith Halbin, some unpleasantness connected with his name. Lucius Bates nodded. That would be about his brother Edmund. For years, there was bad feeling between the two men. It reached a climax when Edmund publicly accused Horatio of falsifying reports as to the depths he had reached in the diving bell but they must have patched up their differences, for they continued to live here together until one day when Edmund left. Where did he go? I don't really know. Horatio wasn't sure either, though he said something about his brother having interest in Haiti. Is this all Horatio's shell collection? asked Edith Halbin, nodding toward the tank. Bates shook his head. No, but for some reason he destroyed most of it before his death. He suffered a heart attack, you know, while fitting that cover on the aquarium. Next day, by means of hard, if unskillful work, Miss Rhodes managed to get the frozen valves into operation. She drained the tank, and when it was emptied, saw that the bottom was made up of a thick layer of grayish sand upon which the shells rested or were partially buried. While the tank was refilling, she turned her attention to the library desk and came upon a drawer she had not opened before. Here were several file folders with the name Horatio Lear stamped upon them. One contained a chart labeled Caribbean Area Subdivision Synarbon Deep. There were other charts, many of them illustrated with pen and ink drawings of marine shell life. As Miss Rhodes looked through these papers, a desire to know more about the subject seized her. Across the room in a tiny alcove off the library proper, Kuching, the Siamese, lay on a pillow surrounded by her kittens and watched through slitted eyes. Presumably, the alcove above had been built for bookbinding, cataloging, and other related tasks, but when Edith had seen it, she decided it was the place for her pet. By carefully comparing some of the smaller shells from the tank with the illustrations on the charts, Miss Rhodes was able to catalog a dozen or more specimens, including a rare bluish Stimson's colis, a deep water Solariella obscura, an albino queen conch, and a Caribbean vase. Then she began to read from a typewritten paper which she found in another file folder. The manuscript seemed to be a hodgepodge of deep water scientific observations and autobiographical remarks. As she continued to read, a feeling of detachment and unease slowly stole over her. Her first impression was that Lear had been a very erudite man, completely absorbed in his work, but when she came upon several vitriolic notations concerning his brother Edmund, her admiration changed to a feeling of repugnance. Miss Rhodes went to bed that night, her head filled with unpleasant thoughts. What sort of man was this, who was so obsessed with anger for his own kin that he would violate the ethics of his profession by burying his soul in a paper ostensibly devoted to science? Moreover, his hatred seemed to have no greater motive than Edmund's refusal to accept Horatio's theory concerning some forms of deep marine life. What that theory was, was not explained. Miss Rhodes tossed restlessly, finally dozed off. About two in the morning, something awakened her. The noises of the spring night drifted in her open window. Then she became aware of a distant mewing coming from the lower floor. She got up, put on a robe and slippers, and descended the staircase. At the library door, she clicked on the light switch and entered the room. Directly before her stood Cushing, her back arched, her tail stiffened, her head lifted upward. Even as she watched, the cat began to move forward like a creature in slow motion. "'Cushing!' called Miss Rhodes softly. The Siamese swung and hissed, then turned uncertainly and headed for the pillow in the alcove. Miss Rhodes followed and bent down. Only three kittens were there. The fourth was missing." She was in the midst of a search of the room when Edith Halbin entered. I thought I heard something, she said. What's wrong? One of the kittens is missing, replied Miss Rhodes. It must be around here somewhere. But a complete investigation of the room failed to reveal the animal. Then Edith Halbin pointed to one of the small open windows above the wall bookshelves. Her voice betrayed her shock and dismay. Something must have come in and carried it off. Poor Cushing. Miss Rhodes followed her gaze and her lips tightened. For some reason she did not tell her friend that height made entrance or exit by the window impossible, nor did she show her what she saw now by the table midway across the room, the horrible tuft of blood-clotted fur, almost invisible in the shadows, against the dark of the floor. Next day the two women embarked on a project which they hoped would lighten the mood into which they had both lapsed, the painting of Edith Halbin's portrait. Miss Rhodes, genuinely concerned about her friend, reasoned that sitting for a picture would at least take her away from Horatio Lear's book collection, for which the Bristol girl had displayed a strange and unhealthy interest. To Miss Rhodes, everything about the collection was unhealthy, from the ancient moldering covers to the quasi-factual, half-mystical content steeped in folklore and superstition. There was, for example, a copy of Gantley's Hydrofinae, containing some of the most hideous and horrible illustrations she had ever seen. There was a first edition of Dwellers in the Depths by Gaston Le Fay, who, the foreword stated quite blandly, had died insane. And there was a pirated manuscript of the German Unter die all copies of which had supposedly been destroyed in the 17th century. It was the cumulative effect these books had upon Edith Halbin that worried Miss Rhodes. She herself had spent an hour with the volumes and had come away all but overwhelmed with loathing and shattered nerves. But perhaps the portrait would change all that. Against her better judgment, Miss Rhodes consented to Edith's request that she do the portrait against the background of the aquarium. Try, though she would, however, to keep the likeness of the container of shells subdued, it persisted, by some trick of pigment or brushstroke, in standing forth in parallel importance to the figure in the painting. Moreover, the effect of water in the tank was not at all realistic. A heavy shadow was concentrated here which no amount of reworking seemed able to lighten. After two weeks, the portrait was done. Seeking relief from the finished task, Miss Rhodes strolled into the little yard behind the house, unmindful of the mizzling rain that dripped from a leaden sky. Presently, she became aware of a man on a stepladder on the adjoining property. It was Lucius Bates. She crossed over and bade him good morning. "'But a what gloomy one,' he said, resting his saw on the branch of the plane tree he had been trimming. "'Seems one bad day follows another.' They exchanged idle talk. "'You still haven't got rid of that stone monstrosity, I see,' he said. Monstrous? Oh, you mean the aquarium. But why? Bates adjusted his oversized spectacles. You have a rather nice library. That oversized tank is out of taste. I've often wondered why Horatio put it there in the first place. Presumably because it was close to his place of work. Fiddlesticks. I should think a dry table would have been as good a place to keep his shell specimens on. But then Horatio was a little touched. Miss Rhodes was going to mention Lear's queer papers and books when she thought better of it. Instead, she said, In what way? Touched, I mean. Bates smiled slightly. Well, for one thing, his pet theory about a form of undersea life. He had some wild idea that somewhere in the unplumbed ocean depths there exists a highly developed kind of mollusk capable of emulating certain characteristics of those life forms it devours. That was his original theory. In later years, he apparently cloaked it with a pattern of demonology and what amounted to a modern adaptation of prehistoric superstition and folklore. He believed that these super-undersea species are the incarnation of those elder gods who ruled the antediluvian deep and whose existence has been brought down to us in the dark myths and legends of a primitive past, that commanded by the great Cthulhu they have lain dormant these aeons in the sunken city of Flan, awaiting the time they would rise again to feed and rule. He believed further that this metempsychosis of the Elder Gods carried with it a latent incredible power, and that if he could aid them to their destiny, some of that power would be transmitted to him. Oh, Horatio really went all out in this mystic folderol. I even overheard him promise his brother Edmund all kinds of maledictions if he continued to ridicule his beliefs. Curious, said Miss Rhodes. How old a man, Miss Horatio? Old enough to know better. Somewhere near fifty, I should say. To Miss Rhodes' disappointment, the painting of the portrait had little effect on Edith Halbin. The Bristol girl continued to haunt the library, lost in the conchologist's deep-sea world of print. The more fantastic, the more macabre the books and manuscripts were, the more absorbed she became in them. When she went about her everyday household tasks, she did so mechanically, her mind obviously far removed from work. Yet Miss Rhodes refused to become unduly alarmed. Edith had always been an impressionable person. The artist reasoned that her friend would return to normalcy as soon as her fancy passed. It was about this time that the sound began. It began as a subdued murmur, with only her vague awareness at first, so low that she took it to be another manifestation of the high blood pressure which had mildly troubled her for some time. Day by day it continued sporadically, now growing, now lessening in intensity. At times it would be gone, and she thought with relief she was rid of it, then it would return, louder and more persistent than before. When she asked Edith if she had heard anything unusual, the Bristol girl only looked blank. The physician in Haley Street, she finally consulted, gave her a routine examination. I can find nothing wrong with you, he said. The auditory canal seem normal in all respects. A murmuring sound, you say? Miss Rhodes nodded. Yes, a low throbbing, as if, well, as if a large hollow shell were placed against the ear and held there he looked a little puzzled, went into vague discourse on psychosomatic symptoms, and ended by prescribing a mild sedative. April slipped into May. The sound continued and Miss Rhodes' companion grew more restive. She became careless in her dress and forgetful in her speech. What was worse, she took to sleepwalking. On three successive nights, Miss Rhodes, always a light sleeper, was awakened by the sound of steps on the uncarpeted floor of the outer corridor. The last night, tiptoeing to her door... She had seen Edith walk slowly, stiffly past, and with robot-like movements descend the staircase to the ground floor. At the entrance of the library in the dim glow of the nightlight, she paused a moment before entering. Miss Rhodes stood by her door hesitantly. She had read somewhere that to awaken a somnambulist in the midst of his meandering might induce shock. Nevertheless, she couldn't let her friend move about in this condition at random. She hurried down the stairs. The library was in total darkness, but when she switched on the light, the sight she saw held her rigid for an instant. Edith had drawn up a chair in the middle of the room and sat there, stiffly erect, staring at the aquarium. Her hands hung at her sides. Her head was slightly tilted downward like a bird watching. There was something quietly horrible about the taut posture, her sightless concentration. Miss Rhodes touched her on the shoulder. She said gently, "'You must have dozed off.' "'I told you not to read so much. Come to bed.' It was a curious fact that the sleepwalking incident marked the end of that chain of events which had so disturbed Miss Rhodes. As if by magic, Edith roused herself from the mood which had gripped her since coming to this house. And, as if by magic too, the murmuring sound dwindled and finally passed away. The very weather underwent a change, overcast days giving way to those of brightest sunshine. Yet deep within Miss Rhodes was the conviction that it was the pause before the storm. On the night of the 19th of May, she was working in the conservatory studio, doing a new painting. For an hour, Edith had silently watched her friend wield her brushes. Then she rose to her feet. I'll have some lettuce to write, she said. Miss Rhodes nodded, absorbed in her work. Across on the far wall, the pendulum clock pushed its ticks through the quiet. The air was sultry. Outside, a light rain was beginning to fall, and the smell of wet earth drifted through the open window. The painting, A Still Life, was going well, far better than the portrait of Edith, and Miss Rhodes worked with enthusiasm. Perhaps a half-hour passed before she became conscious of the silence of the house. Silence pervaded the conservatory like a living entity through which the faint hushing of her brushstroke sounded unnaturally loud. Frowning a little, she went to the connecting door and stood there listening. There was no sound in the house. No creaking of a chair, no rustling of a paper, nothing. A little chill of unease began to move up her spine. Edith, she called hesitantly, are you all right? Her voice went bounding down the corridor to stir up a fusillade of echoes, but brought no reply. Miss Rhodes put down her brush and palette and headed for the library. She reached the entrance and halted uncertainly. The door was locked. She knocked on the panel. Edith, she called, let me in. The same ringing silence answered her. Again, she pounded on the door. Edith, why don't you answer? Her unease gave way to alarm. She turned and ran down the corridor to the kitchen where a master key hung from a hook on the wall. A moment later, she had unlocked the library door and entered the room. At first glance, she thought the room was empty. Her eyes lowered to the floor, and she advanced several steps. For a long moment, she stood there looking looking down. A dribble of saliva ran from a corner of her mouth. Then she turned very quietly and left the room. The rain, coming down harder, wrapped itself about her as she went out the door and down the outside steps to the street. She walked down Haney Lane to Brompton Road, heading southeast toward Embankment. She moved into Basil Street and followed Basil into Walton, threading her way blindly through the night traffic, unaware of her surroundings, not knowing where she was or where she was going. She entered Pont Street, and as she went on, she saw again in her mind's eye what she had seen in the library, the sight which would live forever in her memory the body of Edith Halbin lying limp upon the floor, a body that was all but unrecognizable, because the head and face had been partially devoured. And the aquarium, that no longer showed a milky gray solution, was now a sickening pink. And most hideous of all, the marks on the floor, the still wet, red convolutions extending from the aquarium to the body of Edith Halbin, and from there back to the tank again, marks that might have been made by some crawling thing, satiated and slobbered with blood. Miss Rhodes came to Cadogan Square. Here she suddenly stopped, threw back her head, and screamed. Alright, on with the story. What the hell was that? There was like some really weird noise outside my window. It was like a... And I think it was like a dog howling? But I've never heard a dog howl like that before. I don't even know if it came up on the recording. Probably it didn't. Okay. Violate the ethics of his profession by burying his soul in a paper ostensibly devoted to science. And the dog is back. The dog stopped for a little while, but now he's back. Moreover, his hatred seemed She got up, put on a robe and slippers, and descended the staircase. At the library door, she clicked on the light switch and entered the room. Directly before her stood Kutching, her back arced... I don't know if you can hear that dog or not. I really hope not, because I don't want to have to re-record this entire thing. Directly before her stood Cushing,